Welcome, one and all, to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Discovery podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Welcome to the future, Pete. My name lacks authority. Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, for episode 302, That Hope Is You, part no, Far From Home, more on that later, comes to you now via thermal roll and just a bit of fleet news before we launch into the episode pete canadian casting information suggests that star trek strange new worlds will shoot in canada in 2021 from february to july uh, with discovery shooting from november of this year until spring of 2021 this will be the first time since april 1999 that two star trek shows will be filming uh simultaneously in the same country can't get there soon enough i'm dying to know who else is going to fill out the stranger worlds cast of course behind anson mount rebecca romaine and ethan peck i'd also say just real tentatively does that mean stranger worlds comes late winter early spring i'll just pick a month late march 2022 that's probably the neighborhood of it uh not knowing i mean let's see i guess discovery could come first ball still up in the air for picard uh uh lower decks uh has started to do voice um recording uh there was a Yesterday, shot of, yeah with uh, with uh uh jack quaid and then matt if only section 31 got a shout out in this episode yeah, it did. Although, to my mind, much love towards the idea of a Section 31 show. Can't wait for Bo, Bo Yan Kim and Erica Lippold to be uh, co-show running that show. It does seem to be a bit stalled compared to some of these other productions. But, uh, Pete, as you have said before, no wine before it's time. Uh, and the second bit of Star Trek news, Pete talking about future wine, if you will... Uh, and last week, Alex Kurtzman has expressed interest in bringing uh, two Star Trek virtual production spaces, a.k.a. the LED light boxes, as seen in the production of The Mandalorian. Pete, does this represent a logical step forward in film and TV production, especially through the lens of COVID? Or is this proof that J.J. Abrams is the secret puppet master behind both Star Trek and Star Wars? This is the way. With that, Pete, let's head into the mission briefing. Sparks flash aboard the bridge and illuminate an unconscious Kayla Detmer, albeit with her eyes open, laying face down on her console, uh, non-cybernetic side. We're going to discuss a lot of this throughout this episode. Tilly, Reno, Bryce, uh, Reese, Awushikun, Saru, uh, all pictured there afterward, Saru waking the deck floor of the bridge, Matt vibrating, very reminiscent of the piece in the previously on segment when Leland Control was, air quotes, defeated and the nanites leaving his body Siren sound as the ship exits the wormhole toward a planet missing a significant chunk of its surface. Saru orders everyone to their stations. Tilly says her head feels like it's in a vice, which Reno identifies as tidal forces from exiting the wormhole. You know, like G-forces, but nastier. 
uh, it knocked them out and it's knocked out her back. Detmer, Matt, can't get control. Pete, this, I know you're starting to lay some track for, for our theory segment and some of the Detmer question marks. I just want to say to myself in the future that since I've had the experience ahead of season three, going back and listening to our podcasts from season one and season two, uh, this is normally when you are also laying tracks to the truth. So future me, I'm getting on board with Pete early on this one. I hope it, uh, I hope it all panned out. Pete, want to mention the, uh, the Saru moment with all the debris there. We've discussed in the past the YouTube channel Junk Ball Media that makes fun Star Trek videos, uh, and and he likes to highlight how oftentimes in Star Trek they will use foam rocks, uh, just be like, rocks suddenly explode on the Enterprise D bridge or in the movies and whatnot. I couldn't help but think of that as I saw Saru surrounded by debris, which could be rocks on this all non-rock starship, uh, but perhaps a bit more importantly, a bit more seriously, Pete, you mentioned they make their way out of the time vortex. They're they're around the icy remnants of this destroyed world. I love the brace, brace, brace moment. Yeah, right after Detmer reroutes to gain control. <laughs> uh, there are, of course, harried efforts to prevent, you know, everyone from dying. There's that thermal roll that you mentioned. Um, love oh, you some know, of the... the one that was done after Detmer has minimal controls. That would be the one. Uh, I want to point out, Pete, that shields are put up. Um, I couldn't help but notice it, it's kind of the whole shape shields versus the TNG era bubble shields. Not the first time the show has done it at all, but it just kind of caught my eye as, a, I don't know, maybe I had my mind in the, the world of Next Generation a bit too much. Ultimately, the ship lands hard. Everyone has a Ugh! moment. And Pete Detmer gets thrown over the console uh, in, in quite the tumbling fashion. Uh, to take us into the credits. The title card here featuring uh, our full cast uh, and obviously uh, Sinequa Martin Green seen the very, very end of this episode, but really great to see Rachel Antrell, uh called out as a regular here, the non-actress. So tremendous addition as well on top of you know, David Ayala and the other regulars we have coming in the next couple episodes, the new characters. The episode is written by Michelle Paradise, Jenny Lumet, and Alex Kurtzman, and directed by Olatundi Adsunsami, which, Pete, to go back to your joke in the beginning, those are the exact same writers and the exact same director from uh, last week's episode. This not, however, being a named sequel to it. Uh, after the crash, everyone appears to be okay. Owo starts the applause for Detmer. Detmer seems to have had her bell rung or worse uh, and ultimately gets sent to sickbay. Bleeding from her cybernetic augmentation, she stands there. They, they give her the applause and uh, Reno wants to buy her a drink and uh, a neuroblocker for herself. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, the moment there... Pete, I'm confused where the ship is up to. Luckily, we now get status reports just from like from like just about everybody. Comms, internal and external, are down. They don't know where they are or when they are. Jet Reno also mentions that her back is hurt for like the third time in the first eight minutes. Pete, I think her back is hurt. Uh, it's also confirmed that the ship 
can't fly, can't call for help. Saru captains up, orders a search for uh, what ultimately for story conveniences is the two things that will help the ship's tech. You know, it's the spinny box thing and the circuit relay thing. Those two things need to be fixed. I'm having a little fun because I think probably the damage would be more considerable than that. But Pete, for an hour long episode, it's clear you need to have the glowy light box and you need to fix the whole thing in the in the Jeffrey's tube that's going to be happening later on. And they flip the paradigm that they're searching for Burnham, which comes around so deliciously at the end of the episode and and rockets us forward. Don't call Uh, her rocket girl, Pete. Yeah, exactly. But uh, Reno doesn't recall Terralisium being this icy. Okay, we're not there. We so we know everywhere else we might be. Okay. Also, uh, because they can't use sensors in the ship, uh, Reno again with the fix, like she did on the Hiawatha, is going to modify the tricorders, and Seru is going to survey the ship physically. So we get a little walk and talk. Pete, we also get a setting update from Tilly, who says that the planet's surface has an active settlement, which is in within an atmospheric pocket, of which there are a number. But there is life! Pete, that's their way of getting hope that they saved the future, even though they don't know if they've made it to the future. This show kind of pretending... I don't know, the show having its cake and eating it too in terms of they're not sure that they did it, but they want evidence that they did the thing, which I suppose, Pete, is human. Um, Well, we know that they did, and that's where I feel that it works. It's the dramatic irony that these characters in this episode do not know yet. These decagons, this design indicating that it was made. So, oh, all right, this show's that we were successful, that we're not going to carry at least that mystery forward for the rest of the episode. Uh, We get another update here. Bryce physically holding the glowy box that is unglowy. Pete, it might have a fancy name. All I know (laughs) is this. It's made very clear to the audience. When this box glows, we will have one of the two things that we need in this video game to make the next story happen. Uh, Giorgio arrives. She's got gooey bits of Leland on her boots. She's bloodied, but she does not need your Federation health care. Thank you very much. Uh, she's going to go to a single a single care provider, I guess. Uh, she she caught the Leland. She fought the Leland. Pete, now she's healed. Some would say immune. <laughs> and she had to make sure that he was dead by stepping all over him. Uh, and they need to clean the spore cube of the rest of the gooey bits. A uh, little bit more on that later. Okay. Uh, but Saru, uh, adamant that they cannot assume they will be welcome among whatever strangers dwell on this planet. In Sick Bay, we have a rather effective uh, montage that is both present of Stamets unconscious with his scar where he had been impaled, then Culber uh, giving him a hypo, which leads to a replay of when he was put into the coma, and then Culber uh, in the present again, all right, we had a rough landing, there's people in bad shape, we need your bio bed, okay, we don't know when we are, our sensors are down, all that stuff, gonna put you in the cellular regeneration chamber, Of course, 
Stamets wants up, wants in, okay, to help out with repairs. But he's got a spell. Uh, my partner brought me out of coma, and all I got was this lousy T-shirt. And I love that uh, he doesn't include the hyphen, and that's why uh, Culber, his partner, uh, grounds him with his scrambled brain. But in the meantime, Matt, Kayla Detmer has reported to sickbay, looks around suspiciously as no one at first tends to her, almost like she's in control. Perhaps, Pete. Maybe she's just shaken, though. Uh, Dr. Pollard does see her, patches up those superficial wounds. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Dr. Pollard, who just uh, called time of death on uh, strange alien head number one of two. R.I.P. strange alien head one of two. There's there's another one of the same alien uh, still on the bridge, so... You know, we 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 mourn the loss, but we move on. So just uh, call time of death on a crew uh, crewman there, okay? And oh, hey, you're over here. Uh, oh, he didn't make it. Uh, doesn't scan her. Does the dermal regenerator on the side by her cybernetic? Says that her neurological tests are clear. She doesn't have a concussion, and that she's good to go. Oh, was there something else? No, you're in control. Good. See you later. Uh, I will grant you, we get the exposition that she has cleared concussion protocol, but we appear not, in terms of the the chronology of the scene, she comes in, she looks around, she gets noticed, she gets the wound fixed. Uh, Pete, perhaps the wound, perhaps the dermal regenerator um, does concussion scanning simultaneously. Again, this is more just me being devil's advocate. The point is they're clearly showing that the crew is distracted and taking away from the internal mystery that she's going through. Apart from the fact that she walks past Culber, he turns after uh, a beat and then she's gone. Ominous music as she's disappeared down the corridor. Pete, all I will add to that is the fact that uh, Nan does notice Detmer in sickbay and shades of, oh, of last season when Nan noticed something was up with Arium. I must recall, I don't know whether that Arium under the uh, control of the sphere data, uh, whether that bore fruit uh, in that episode when Nan first noticed her or in the next one, but non clearly keeping an eye out uh perhaps setting up the montage in a couple episodes of and then there was this and then there was that and it's just like in the first season when, when we said uh you know here's why the captain has looked out for uh for uh burnham and here's why he's been charting all this stuff and whatnot but pete time will tell let's go to the ready room pete the ready room that when they go to a wider shot the the wooden hand-hewn table that uh, that uh, Captain Pike would sit at broken. It's back broken. Oh, if only we could get more Captain Pike one day. Um, <laughs> uh, but in the ready room, Giorgio is wondering why what's his name hasn't finished making the glowing thing glow. Pete, she's talking about uh, Bryce. Um, they of course re- need rubidinum, uh, and perhaps there's some out there. Saru uh, has a really interesting reminder here that though they are 
presumably 930 years behind the current timeline. So kind of the whole, you know, don't go back in time and step on the wrong uh, butterfly or, you know, give future tech to the past and mess up and whatnot. Nonetheless, Discovery has information that they cannot share, uh, which is probably worth filing away that the ship itself mm -hmm. is kind of tainted and feeds into your theory of Discovery uh, 1031A at some point in the second half of the season. Um, but ultimately, Giorgio is ready to get those rubidinum guns ablazing, but Saru reminds her, nay, asserts to her, that no one shall be abandoning their principles here. Yes. And the dilithium readings here um, that they have ships that there's 50 life signs, um, but there's uh, no movement. Um, but Giorgio is impatient. Uh, she says that, you know, these are not Kelpians who have never seen a starship. And it's an even more delicious line given that, Prime uh, Giorgio was the one who brought Saru and the Kelpians into Starfleet and here to flip it around as mirror Giorgio. But uh, Nan wonders too why they're hiding back to that point about those past events, you know, the knowledge of those. So he's going to take Tilly with him. Uh, you know, the one with as much psychic dominance as a kitten. Okay, what the? No, you report to sickbay, says Saru, taking charge of the situation. This commanding Saru we've seen ever since uh, the events of his Vaharai here taking over. And that coming back a little bit later. The guy doesn't even need to bring a phaser with him anymore. He is a phaser set to stun at all times. Um, I think he does stick a phaser into a pouch in he the does, getting he dressed for mission montage. He doesn't need it. <laughs> That's true. Pete, is is Tilly's getting the F-bomb cut off? Is that the show signaling that they had their fun, they dropped their F-bombs when no show, no Star Trek show had F-bombed before, uh, and, and now maybe they've gotten feedback to say, not necessarily my feedback, but they've gotten... I'm not saying specifically me. I'm not saying I have a master to serve here in terms of no F-bombs in Star Trek. But do you think that's their way of saying, we got it, we heard you fans, or we heard you execs, we're not dropping F-bombs for, for chuckles anymore? It's within character now, and it works better without her saying it, um, that she catches herself. And it's a through line in this episode. Later on, she, you know, first she's challenged here about, well, what do you need the command uh, handbook right now? And then later on, she quotes regulation to the people who doubt that Starfleet still exists. So it's all within characterization here, trying to be more like an officer. Um, so it's kind of like those Fs that you leave behind, you know, shades of the Deep Space Nine finale. It's, <laughs> it's those Fs you leave behind. I did see a headline in the last week I'm trying to remember the source, but that Sir Patrick was dismayed by the language in uh, Picard. I mean, really, I, I kind of doubt it. I mean, but whatever. Uh, he's, so he's a producer on the show. And if <laughs> right, what we were right. led to believe by that, his Twitter picture where he's sitting there in a number of the meetings, I mean, presumably he or somebody from his camp is looking at all these scripts and saying, you know, 
now sir patrick are you are you all right with x and if, if it was a big you know he shall never do such and such you know of course they're gonna one would assume they're gonna listen to him but but pete bring us back to the future of star trek <laughs> if he wanted to shut it down he would have last last word on that one there uh he, Saru, and Tilly are going to report to Sick Bay. They're going to get the appropriate treatment to breathe naturally in this atmosphere. Non, you're in charge of ship repairs. Giorgio, you're going to assist with repair of the EPS grid. Uh, I love that Saru dismisses her after she's left with everybody else. But hey, let's let's grab a shovel, Matt, and head to the spore cube where the bottom of the shovel looks like that white plastic thing that your ground beef uh, gets put in as uh, hazmat, AKA gene cleans up aisle five. I've already forgotten his name. All right, Pete, there's so much there. I'll go, I'll try and go in chronological order. First of all, the decisions made for the gooey sinew and the blood. I mean, great, great practical effects there. I actually think Pete, that there was so much, goo i i think that there's evidence in this scene of in terms of when the cuts are and how much is shown i think that maybe the ooey gooey was looked great when they were filming and it was awesome and then when i think when they got the footage it was like this is maybe a little too gross for what we're trying to do um you know let's let's we're not gonna go reshoot but let's kind of dial back there's uh, a wide shot to end the scene where the camera starts to pan over and like right as you could potentially see more they cut away but there's that second curious decision to name cleanup guy gene um i, I assume it was done lovingly uh i, I pete I'm, I'm sure you know all the all the the wrong diminishing quarters of uh star trek complainers uh you know will, will somehow take umbrage at that uh and as i said on twitter i'm sure people are going to complain that star trek was now acting like wagon train in the stars with the cowboy stuff in the second half despite the fact that's what gene roddenberry that's how gene roddenberry pitched the show wagon train in the stars but i i don't know what to make of gene um but i know that outside of the spore cube uh reno and stamets are working together despite both of them being in rough shape yeah this is not Gene's trek, Matt. It's Stamets and Reno's trek here. Um, that uh, she's going to go along and she's got this. It seems like a chair at first, but I think it's also her toolkit that opens up that she can sit down on, which is just a, a great, uh, you know, function. And uh, she's going to follow along with Stamets for the uh, witty repartee to Saru and Tilly's quarters where they dress in their drab incognito clothing. Uh, the music here pretty much imitating a Battlestar Galactica, you know, dystopian vibe. Pete, they step out into the icy land uh, as they walk. The camera work is very jittery, especially during the close-ups. It's almost as though they had trouble keeping up with them, especially in the Tilly close-ups. I don't know if this is an artistic choice. It, was this quickly shot in Iceland? Was it quickly shot on location in Canada? Uh, is it a green screen where maybe there's there's some results there? Uh, to me, it was visually distracting how there's Tilly close-ups in particular where her face starts on the right side then moves to the left as the camera's kind of bopping around, but... But I digress, Pete. Uh, 
it, within the characters here, Saru attests uh, that he brought Tilly because of her assets, her her kind of, yes, she's fearful, but she's bringing fresh eyes and optimism and whatnot to the situation. Probably also helps that she's, you know, like a, like a series lead and they're not going to bring, you know, Lieutenant so-and-so from the lower decks because uh, she's a series lead. But, but Pete, take us back to the ship. Parasitic ice grows on the ship here that Nan lays out for Jarju. Uh, Pete, is that a story clock? Just a bit. We name check Nilsen here, later name checked. Uh, Maybe we'll send her up into the Jeffries tube. So the former Arium actress, of course, who now plays Nilsen, that they've given a, a human role. Okay. Her team are trying to figure out the ice wherever they are. Okay. The ice, of course, that accelerates in the shade. So when the sun goes down, they're screwed. Okay, deck four is clear. Name check of Arium. That is why uh, Nan uh, stayed for the science officer who paid the price of a soldier. Giorgio doesn't like that decision. Uh, She says that Section 31 would have begged her to take over by now. They still will. Uh, But bureaucracy bureaucracy is where fun goes to die great line she gets all the great lines in this episode she likes jumping from universe to universe and then enter linus who tells us that the eps grid is now functional on deck six the linus actor matt uh not sure if you know this also played cosmo in the previous uh episode so we have a a budding uh saru a budding Doug Jones on our hands. Yes, I did know that. It's great that, uh, uh, it's great to see that they're doing that. I think a number of the, a number of the main aliens from last week, maybe not head Orion and head, uh, uh, and Dorian. I don't know about them, but some of the crew that were around them, uh, it was like also the person who played, you know, uh, and Dorian number two and things like that in prior episodes. So good to see that they're developing a, a, you know, a deep bench here. Pete, I don't know if you noticed in this scene, there's an uncut walk and talk uh, as Giorgio and uh, Nan make their way through the repair uh, stuff, walk into a turbo lift on one busy deck. Uh, then the turbo lift doors open. That's when they see Linus and they're on another deck. I suspect probably when the doors reopened for Linus, they had put up a, green screen or a blue screen uh, and then put the Linus stuff in a little bit later because they kind of quickly go, Oh look. And then you cut to an actual Linus close up. but Pete, that a trick. Okay. Used first to my eyes by the JJ Abrams in star Trek. Oh nine Pete, that doesn't mean it's bad. It's a tool in the toolbox. Uh, back to the planet we go. I mean, I know we're on the whole planet the entire time, but Pete, for my verbiage, we're on the ship. We're on the planet. Perhaps I should say planet surface, but the ship is on the surface too. Hopefully you understand. On the planet, Tilly and Saru follow a mystery man to a transporter point. Uh, They enter that transporter point, which is right in front of space double doors leading to a space bar. The only thing missing was space piano player going dun 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 dun. And then when he sees them, he's Maybe somebody will walk in wearing spurs later on. Uh, Pete, you never know as this episode leans into the Western stuff. Uh, we do see townsfolk, again, kind of using the Western aesthetic here, fiddling with their space revolvers. Then they all draw on our heroes. Pete, is it curtains for Tilly and Saru? 
It is not. The one who will die by the hands of Zara there, Cal, uh, the one who identifies the Starfleet ship and that uh, they introduce themselves as officers asked to prove it. Tilly rattles off regulation 256.15 about officers acting like officers at all times. Uh, but, you know, it's scary with phasers in their face. You can lower them and uh, we'll get their names, Cal, uh, the barkeep here, um, and this uh, lionization of the Federation and Starfleet. They will help us that it's part of them. It's who they are. There is also, as you suggested, there's a little bit of a, of a disconnect in terms of the, the local folks understanding, fine, you have a Starfleet ship, but who are you? Not the assumption uh, that they are a Starfleet. Um, Cal is the one who led them here, uh, and he name checks the fact that the planet that they're on doesn't really have an official name, but they call it the Colony. These folks are the Cordon. Uh, we get a new story clock because Zara henceforth unseen must have tracked them he's bad they won't say why he's bad quite yet tilly offers up some dilithium that gets their attention uh they'll take some for their ships and more to sell at the exchange hey pete these wants and needs and words they are familiar to me based on last week's episode i'm not sure they're talking of the same place though that was the mercantile i would agree but it's just kind of it's it's Insofar as we are playing this game on first view of yes. when could they be and where could they be? It's kind of like, hey, you want dilithium and you want more. You don't just have what you have to stick in your thing and then there's a regeneration chamber. You have dilithium, you want more, you're going to sell it somewhere at some sort of non-Federation moneyless future. You know, it's... It, and and again, I mean, look, we've seen the previews. We've There's no surprise that they're all together we've seen the time-lapse footage from the early previews of you know burnham somewhere over time and the hair gets longer so the fact that it's ultimately a year later none of that's a surprise but if we if we turn those things aside pete if you can live hashtag spoiler free then this is all starting to sound like the same universe the same time etc yeah the courier arrangement for sure although we seem to be setting up a situation where there are you know, couriers like Book, who are obviously more uh, lawful or on the side of good. And then Zara here, clearly one of our threats. Um, so Saru is confident they can come to some kind of agreement back to the ship where Reno, because her back is basically goading Stamets into the Jeffrey's tube. Uh, she's going to offer sunshine there, moral support, um, you know, after he had the seven inch shard removed from his chest, uh, or they could get Nilsson up there. Uh, but no, you're going to go up there. Uh, and then back in the saloon with, uh, Tilly and Cal, uh, his, uh, programmable matter repair kit, uh, her classic ship, uh, it's not Rebindium that they're using there, but hey, uh, peach pie, gazpacho recipe thing that her grandmother says. And Cal wants to know if he's Starfleet material. Ah, uh, yes, those aspirations there. 
Uh, at the bar proper, the barkeep explains that Zara is the courier and exploiting them for just about everything that they can't make or grow themselves. Seru wonders why the Federation hasn't helped. How could he ask such a thing? So again, you know, kind of in this gray area of, gee whiz, have they forever split up Burnham and the ship? Or will there be a reun- uh, you know, some reuniting um, later, maybe the end of the episode? The fact that we're setting up, you know, programmable matter, duh, it's the easiest thing, even for us out here in the sticks. The Federation not coming, duh, how could you ask such a thing? Uh, with that, Zara's ship arrived, and then Zara himself enters, boots, uh, looking all black and evil, spur sounds as he walks through the double door, space western, very clear. Uh, presumably, he's seen the discovery, though it was not part of the databases. Uh, when told that Discovery is an older model, Zara says, aren't we all? Uh, he starts to talk about the freaky signature that uh, that uh, predated their arrival. Gamma rays, gravitational waves. Um, go on, say what causes this. But Pete, Saru's the one keeping things on task. Yeah, you got to wonder if Zara was in the writer's room at, at one point. He's just so quick on all of this, but it works within the scope of his place in the story okay coming on a little bit more than a half hour into a 53 minute episode okay zara played to by jake weber matt the minute i saw the face i'm like i i i think i know who that is okay find out end of the episode here who's playing him that is uh jake weber uh the heavy uh of drew in meet joe black i'm like I, I knew it. I knew it was that guy. Also in uh, Dawn of the Dead uh, reboot in 2004. He's very good, and he does not have a lot of time to be evil. Um, I think that... I kept thinking of like Ian McShane. Like If there was somebody who mm-hmm. came in and it's it was definitely, like... They, they clearly... One, Ian McShane's a little old for this. Two for the part that it is you're not going to go get him right. so we've clearly identified the new ian mcshane it's jake weber i think that some somebody of the a plus 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 level of ian mcshane i think could have taken these great lines and just you know there, there, there's there's obviously a malice that's there i'm not trying to take away from jake weber at all i'm just saying i think that there's 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 a warp 10 presentation of this where you go oh my goodness is this the baddest guy ever and then 20 minutes later, you're surprised that he's, you know, uh, presumably killed off, uh, perhaps to return. Who can say? But um, nonetheless, it's all lining up here that he's he's a man of the universe, a man of the world. That None of this particularly surprises him. Uh, he does notice that Tilly is hiding, then shows him the glowy tech box that now has been fixed. Um, he adds to his list of uh, info here that this should be an easy fix. However, they needed the lowly Cal and company. All of that, along with the freaky signature, means that they are time travelers. And Cal helped. That's naughty. Zara slowly phasers him to death with his phaser shotgun, uh, showing that he's uh, you know a, a sadistic guy. It seemed a little unclear based on how he did it. And we've identified with Cal, like, is this fatal? Is this recoverable with the tech of the day? And instead, we gradually come to the realization that this is terminal and, you know, just making it 
painful for the sake of characterization. And when Giorgio shows up later that he says he's going to do it slow is even more menacing. And you'll see at the end of the Giorgio fight, there is a, there is a fast setting uh, on the, uh, on the space shotgun. Uh, Zara says that he's going to be taking there, the Starfleet stuff, some to the Tellarite exchange, others directly to the Orions. One of the henchmen then starts to uh, speak Pigeon, and Saru asks for the conversation in the common tongue. Uh, Zara notes that any captain would know Pigeon, even a Vidraish, as mentioned in Calypso, theory discussions in a bit. Uh, but ultimately, all of this further evidence that Saru has no authority here, whereas the burn was great for Zara. Oh my goodness, Pete, they're after the burn. If only they could meet up with our main character before the end of the episode. Cheers. <laughs> cheers indeed uh the tension deliciously continuing here drawn out by zara uh you know lifting a a toast to them of course and uh that the the dilithium aboard the ship the the spoil that uh he's after indeed he also mentions that that parasitic Ice uh, will be impacting them as well. It's another check-in with the story clock. Uh, we go back quickly to Discovery. Reno quarterbacking Stamets, who's up in the Jeffries tube. Non asking if Giorgio made her way to Reno and Stamets. No. Where is she? <laughs> if only there was a need for Giorgio's, you know, black heart, her evil side, to now be used in this evil universe. Back to the bar we go. Uh, Tilly is going to be sent out to the ice. It'll get you if you don't move fast. Uh, I think it's around this point where he throws Sweetheart in there, which I only fully appreciated, uh, which is, say, the nickname of Sweetheart to Tilly. I only fully appreciated that. Uh, at the end of the fight, when Tilly gives that nickname back to him. Uh, A couple then times he did it. He had done it earlier as well. We head back to Reno. Uh, Nilsson, a.k.a. the former season one Arium actress, is there to help. Um, and then she's going to go look somewhere else. So Nilsson then quickly leaves. <laughs> but Pete, here's what I appreciate. Story dictated that 301 was very different and we did not get our starship. We did not get our crew. We did not get make the ship go. We did not get scanners and communications and all that stuff. We're digging into that. We're leaning into that for 302. And all of our Canadian locals are getting their story time, the camera on them, even though they're not the ones going into Jeffrey's tubes uh, on camera and things like that. Everybody gets their moment, uh, 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 Nilsson included. Um, and Nilsson's going to actually leave with the ship rocking and rolling. She's going to leave to go get Culber. So it's not just for random reasons, Pete. It's because she's serving the story. As Stamets is bleeding all over the Jeffrey's tube, uh, Giorgio, having been found here by Zara's thugs, thrown into the saloon, and uh, the the anti-diplomatic character, uh, one-woman diplomatic response here, uh, about to fully unleash herself. Yes, and again, this is the scene. I mean, she's been delicious in all all the scenes that she's been in once, you know, from when we've had mirror Jujo, Giorgio forward. Uh, I think when she was the baddest person in the universe of bad people, there was a certain glee there, but it wasn't contrast. 
uh, perhaps it was contrasted to our Federation people, but she was in her element. When she was working for Section 31, um, she was in her element. Maybe she was the worst one there and that it wasn't just, you know, we're misfits. She also was planning to run the whole thing. But I think that's kind of built into the Section 31 mindset. So, again, no contrast. Here, where she's the only cog that doesn't fit into the Discovery wheel, um, and then now there's this mission that calls for her. It's like, oh my goodness, this is the character fully realized. All her kind of gleeful presentation is shown here. You know, she's ordered to be shot. She tells the goon that maybe the goon should shoot Zara. Why? Because bigger baddies are coming. Zara hasn't told the goons that. Um, and, and you know, uh, Zara ultimately shoots her just a couple of zips at a time. Um, she's bloodied and rolling with the punches. Uh, when she kicks a stool at Zara, a fist fight <laughs> breaks out. Saru's shooting quills. Giorgio takes out uh, everybody else, some of which involving some neck breaking with her thighs. Uh, Tilly's Peach... told to hide behind the bar, of course. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, uh, Giorgio, even taking out the last baddie who jumps up, she shoots him quickly with the gun. There's your proof of there being an upper setting that I guess she had flicked to. Uh, maybe while uh, breaking the neck of the other goon with her with her powerful thighs. What Michelle Yeoh gives to this show in these smaller doses, you know, here again, special guest star as she completely deserves the honorarium. Okay, just elevates the stew that much more. Indeed, and uh, we. Also get the update story clock here. Hey, look, everybody, during the fight, daylight is gone. Okay, not good for uh, our our heroes in the bar. Not good for the ship to which we return, where the parasitic ice is growing. Uh, perhaps at a rate fast enough to communicate to the audience that it's really bad, but also so fast that it probably would give them like 45 seconds and they'd all die. <laughs> I, I get you have to serve the story more than perhaps the science here um, back in the Jeffrey's tube portion of the story. Um, um, we get Colber arrive. He gives uh, arrives. He gives Reno a painkiller. Uh, oh no, but Stamets is up in the Jeffrey's tube bleeding, but he's got to fix the thingus. He removes the infuser matrix. Then he replaces the damaged anodyne circuit with the circuit replaced. The matrix is put back on with that Pete lights come up everywhere because it is one half of the solution and major <laughs> portions of the ship are now looking good again. Just from some techno babble. I mean, it, it's always been the thing that has defined Star Trek, but it is a dual edged bat lift. <laughs> that it is. Uh, back to the bar we go. Giorgio wants to shoot Zara and uh, he's ultimately knocked out with a bottle. Uh, Saru orders Giorgio to stand down. Uh, she looks like she's going to blast him, but then she does the chuckle and the cool guy slash gal move where you lower your hand and the weapon spins around so the brother person can pick it up. Pete, I don't know. The closest I've gotten to that is like water pistols. <laughs> and I don't know that with a super soaker six, that you can do that on account of the water. Um, but Pete, the more important thing is that these Federation ideals are winning out. Uh, and it's indeed not their place to impose their values uh, on on the planet here. Saru leaves Zara to the barkeep to dispense barkeep justice. Zara is told he's free to go out the door into the icy night. 
He's given Tilly's pack. Get walking, cowboy. Uh, with that, the barkeep gives our crew a personal transporter or multiple tr- personal transporters. We have some questions on that later, but they are told, welcome to the future. Yeah, and to have the helpless be in control late in this episode, but yet not to take on the uh, menace of Zara and his gang here. Um, yes, he's, he's sent back uh, conceivably into the wilderness, into certain doom. He doesn't get it, though, leaving a, a reappearance with motivation open. Um, and it further feeds into the ideals of Starfleet, of the Federation, in this barkeep and his Corridan uh, mates. We then get a bit of a montage because, of course, let's not forget, in the bar, the glowy box has been fixed. On the ship, the glowy box is put in place. So, Pete, glowy box, check. Uh, Circuit thing fixed. That means that they're ready to launch. They need a few minutes to reboot fully. Some systems are coming back faster than others. Everyone reports success. Pete, I'm talking your Reese. I'm talking your Bryce. I'm talking your Owo. This is all being overseen by Saru. Everything's go, go, go. Except Detmer is out of it. Uh, when she's kind of, her attention is got, she wonders if they can lift off. But of course, they simply have to, says Saru. Pete, you won't have ships that can take off from an atmosphere until Star Trek Voyager. It's what's going to make UPN great. <laughs> uh, side note, have you ever stopped to think that they wanted to launch the Paramount Broadcast Network in the 70s with uh, Star Trek Phase 2? Then that idea failed. Then they went to UPN, successfully launched UPN, but then that failed. And now they launched CBS All Access, which is now uh, doing well, but the name is going to fail. Like, But they launched that with Star Trek 2. It's just, it's just weird. It is. And, you know, we've talked on the Lower Decks podcast that, you know, the the ships only crash and stay crashed in the movies on TV. The ships land and or make emergency landings and lift off again. Uh, And we start to kind of see that here, the ship buckling. Uh, We kind of have one, two, three, swing right. One, two, three, (laughs) swing left. Um, but they still can't seem to break free. As the but parasitic we... ice tetrises around them. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I would even argue, too, this is this is one of these special effects decisions where you need to show the ship successfully moving, but then, like, the front moves up, but the back won't move. Then the back moves up and the front won't. And I get that you need to show the struggling, and I don't know what this would actually look like in real life uh, because, of course, this is factoring in a level of physics that, you know, doesn't exist um and whatnot but to me it's like you're almost there but i understand for story reasons why you can't pete they just can't seem to break free but wait something big is coming pete something threatening is it zara's friends i can't see the ship pete it's hidden by a light burst it's (laughs) it's pulling them out in a tractor beam but they can't move can we play this moment as though it is the end of all things pete right let's try to open a channel and we'll do this together and even though weapons are ready even though weapons are ready we're on red alert let's let's give a pause close-up shots of everybody okay we've got it all right at, and it's michael burnham with long hair 
Yay, Pete, she's been looking for so long. And she's been waiting for so long. How long? Uh, a year, which debatably is not like that so long. long. <laughs> um, in Was part it because... a standard intergalactic year? Was this the time it takes Pluto to orbit the sun for one of its years? Like maybe that. I don't know that your hair would grow that long in a year without some kind of stimulation too. Pete, you know, I'm going to dial back my criticism of a year not being so long. Uh, Pete, when you uh, are finally administered the COVID-19 vaccine, a version of the vaccine that you feel confident in because medical professionals and the CDC have said so, not other people. When you finally get that injection, probably the first of two, uh, and, and you're then able to say, I can feel better about the world I'm living in. We'll, we, so let's say that's probably going to be March, April, May of 2021, somewhere in there, spring 2021. Will you say, I've been waiting for this so long? I, I, I think you might because it's been a long year. So, so I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I take back my criticism, Commander Michael Burnham. The point is she's arrived. They are reunited. And let's watch this third episode as soon as possible. Pete, with that incoming threat analysis, Pete, my favorite supporting character in all of Star Trek is Detmer, and she's at the top of the threat list. Walk me through this. I There's so much subtext to this episode. Uh, does she do anything threatening she does not but from the first shot of this episode until very late in it where we have this drifting off not cognizant of everything else going on lost in her own thoughts again is it a form of uh you know uh damage or has she been co-opted by control will this unfold you know, similarly to what happened to Arium, uh, different because of any potential uh, transmission, you know, the nanites come through the console. Uh, it's just something completely different, but it, it's off for sure. And here's, here's my concern. I think all the evidence is there and you've lined it up properly. My only kind of pre-complaint if it ends up being oh no control jumped from her this is what kurtzman was talking about it's so timely because they thought they had the control infection taken care of but all it takes <laughs> is one transmission and then it's gonna blah 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 well we they've spent... said too what makes me question it is they have said control was ended with leland um do we do we believe them? Because the creators of a show have never said, no, it's not this, for it to be this. Yeah, I mean, wasn't it Akiva Goldsman who said when he when he joined Team Star Trek, he thought it was about uh, Pike and Spock and then yeah. found out it wasn't and then swore at New York Comic Con, you will never see... Uh, you'll never see Spock on our show. We're, we're going in a new direction. Yes. Um, my only concern is this. We had you know, uh, questionable sphere data in the first half of season two. We had 
control using sphere data in, in the second half of season two. Can't we, if we're fighting control in the third, the first half of season three and whatnot, like at what point do we leave the past in the past and really find some new things? And that's but the that, thing holding it up. I mean, listen, I, I don't want it to be control. Um, I also don't want anything to happen to Detmer, but Matt, if you're paying attention to social media, she seems to be getting ready to depart and quarantine in Canada to shoot season four starting November 2nd. Well, that's good to know. Um, moving on the, the threat list here, we also have the parasitic ice Pete, uh, some people who in the early two thousands had production deals with uh, Paramount uh, uh-huh. and had their versions too. <laughs> had their versions of uh, also production deals that took place in the, you know, in or around the year 4,000 and uh, uh, cobbling together the Federation after its glory days uh, are, are those, some of those people are, complaining to no end the parasitic ice is a dumb thing uh-huh. um pete i don't know if parasitic ice as presented here is um animal vegetable or mineral which is to say i don't know if it is parasitic in its behavior or parasitic in a figurative sense in the way that it can grow and really really take over anything uh i know it's kind of shades of you know the um the uh david attenborough nature stuff and you know there's there's similar parasitic ice growths in you know cold parts of the ocean i don't think it moves quite as fast as we see it here but this is also not a nature documentary so i feel like given that we're almost in the year 4000 and there's aliens and we need something to speed this story up parasitic ice seems like a great thing on the planet of cold with air things that don't get identified but could presumably exist in alien planet with different air than you know outside my house yeah, and I think too, you know, it never feels uh in you know later incarnations of Star Trek, you know, everything feels like it's the opposition needs to be a villain. Um no, it it can be a a force. It it can be nature. Um you know, the the universe being as wild and unpredictable as it is why not parasitic ice i mean really you're gonna get your nose out of joint about that then you know i I think you're just not approaching the subject matter with the open mind that it really calls for we also have zara who uh serves to put the story into dire situations and keep things moving in the second half um again I, i think a very very good performance maybe lacking an amazing greatness to it but the fact that he i like that there's kind of the the you know the frontier town justice of you know get walking and if the wolves slash you know desert doesn't get you then the sun or the you know or, or the the cactuses will something like that and the fact that he could return um i mean it really really is shades of like mud in the first season where it's like oh no i'm not dead now at least with mud we knew of course he wasn't literally gonna die but i'm gonna get you one day and then he comes back like three episodes later i'm back to get you today i think we could have the same with zara as well in a season that we've wondered aloud you know what will the the true threat be um is it control coming back is it zara does control invade sarah matt 
and we have Zuntroll. <laughs> I, I mean, I kid, of course, but yeah, I mean, it's it's of the world that they've set up um, that we've gotten the exposition of of the couriers both in this episode and in the previous. Okay, that he beheaded the the previous courier to to take the route. He takes uh, the Corridan's lunch money. He he wrecked their equipment so that he makes an artificial monopoly. It it all checks out. Pete, as we set our long range sensors to scan for some theories, uh, a a timeline update. Uh, the Calypso short trek was one thousand years after the captain had ordered all hands off the ship and for the ship to maintain orbit. So now that we have successfully bridged season two and season three for Discovery, um, and Calypso being 1,000 years um, after that abandoned ship point, uh, and assuming that this is 3189, you know, a year after 3188 uh, and last week's episode, uh, that puts Calypso at, at the earliest 4189, making it, truly for sure at this point the farthest point in the star trek timeline and the use of the word vidrash uh you know federation so again the the ghost of that organization whether it still remains a thousand years later trying to uh, rebuild, reunify itself whatever it's going to be i mean again considering the setting of that short trek on this discovery with an AI in a nebula cut off in some way uh, with only the, the one character on there. Um, I mean, we thought when we saw that originally, that would be some kind of end stage for discovery. Uh, like I floated in the previous episode do we shift from one vessel to another and take the spore uh, drive idea and get that to the rest of the Federation? Maybe is that why they seem like ghosts? Because they can come and go whenever they want, wherever they want uh, to, to help out and to uphold those noble values. We're, we're going to see. And it's about this exploration here but that we've got these breadcrumbs to pick up on and that you can pour over these episodes in such a way I mean, to, to check in the previously on segment, the sphere data merging with Discovery, like, that was not needed in this episode, okay? Uh, to have a clip of Leland instead of, you know, oh, show Leland, Leland uh, screaming in agony. No, let's get the cut where he says, this does not end here, Okay. Uh, and then the first thing we see is Detmer on the console, her non-cybernetic side. Um, you know, I wonder about the trope of control infects characters with cybernetics. You know, Arium, Detmer. I mean, thank goodness, Matt, Rutherford is safe back <laughs> in the past. Okay, you know, that, of course, lower deck spoiler coming at you here, having lost his cybernetic implant at the end of season one but whew, sam Samantha rutherford is safe 
Yeah, and, and because it feels so familiar, because we did it with Arium, I think you know, there's the like, well, this can't be what they're headed towards because they've already done it once before. And then you can get into the headspace of, so do they know that? And they're setting up evidence, you know, one, three, five, and seven. And you say, oh, look, it's headed to odd. When in fact, they're setting up some sort of other whatever. And you say, oh, you know, you caught our fake bread trail. Here's the real bread trail. It also looks like a fake one until it turns. Um, Pete, next theory here from me. Uh, Linus can see lots and lots with those big peepers. Uh, is it just a story excuse for Giorgio to walk off screen so later she can get rid of him and then end up in the bar? Or are we setting up something more? Yeah, again, what was that about? It was. It, does it speak to her perverted nature? <laughs> was the thing I wondered. Uh, you know, what does she want to see <laughs> with those 74,000 nanometers uh was it just a transition like oh you can see really well i'll use you to go explore these other decks and solve these problems pete uh, 74,074 is 47 backwards by the way there's your hidden star trek 47 moment i go. think in indeterminate at this point but no less noticeable again she has leland on her boots she she needed to make sure he was dead. Is it an issue? I'm I'm going to take him back and and we're going to look over the remains here. We're going to look over what I what was on my boots to see whether he was truly done. Pete, last theory from me uh, is not my theory. It belongs to Aaron seventy nine on Twitter. That's A I R Y N seventy nine. I believe I saw it. Uh, within a couple of hours, I, I saw it when I was still waking up this morning. I believe Aaron had just posted it uh, just a couple hours previous uh, in the UK. So it was, you know, kind of early morning Star Trek theorizing here. It was totally out of the, the blue, but I love it. Here's what Aaron had to say. So can we talk about this? Romulans didn't use dilithium on their ships. So there's a very good chance that despite their homeworld being destroyed, that without the Federation to keep them in check, the Romulans are now the primary force in the Alpha Quadrant. Uh, later on, somebody was complaining to him saying, you know, oh, well, them using a, uh, a a black hole drive seems incredibly dangerous. And he was like, yeah, it is. There was a Next Generation episode about that. Also, how dangerous it might be doesn't change the fact that they actually did it. Um... And Pete, I love this as a theory that they might be the only Alpha Quadrant, Beta Quadrant power uh, not affected by the burn. We've heard no mention of them to this point, uh, but the same is said about you know the Klingons, the the Borg, the Breen. We we just don't know enough about the state of this thirty one eighty nine universe at this point. I I like it as a theory following, all right, if, if the dilithium there uh, led to this, I think it's important to note too, what has discovery brought with it in addition to the spore drive? Seemingly a lot of dilithium. Are we headed down a path where, oh my gosh, midpoint season one, this dilithium is becoming unstable. We've got to take the ship and abandon it in a in a nebula where it can be found in a short track a thousand years from now, um, you know, there, there are these possibilities. And, you know, as much as we've said, oh, this is the, the most wide open Star Trek 
has ever been. At the same time, they're smart to play it in this way that that fans, that eagle-eyed viewers, can keep the guessing game, uh, not guessing game, you're taking evidence and and seeing what it leads to. You know um, that these ships have warp and not dilithium. Pete, what other theories do you have on your space radar? How is Giorgio addressed as commander when they brought Giorgio onto Discovery back in season one? Mirror Emperor Giorgio. She was introduced as Captain Giorgio. This is to them, Philippa Giorgio. Now, granted, she went to Section 31. Would you drop from a captain to a commander? Have they completely drop the subterfuge i mean they're in the future obviously discovery has everybody knows this is mirror Giorgio. okay um but why not captain uh i had wondered the same thing and i have no good answer other i have no good kind of military uh um chain of command answer other than to posit uh if the show wanted to put a, hand, a a hard handbrake on um who is in charge here highest rank is in charge here she has a captain rank provisional fake whatever but she's a captain seru is not yikes we don't want to go down that road one bit we either want seru to advance as we would all love or burn you know if there's going to be a burnham seru power struggle it's not going to be a struggle it's going to be a friendly discussion of ideas and ideals and that does not involve Giorgio. um again kind of in terms of flow chart procedure can i understand why perhaps off screen perhaps in a cut you know cut from the script or cut from the final uh the final um edit whatever it might be where they address that or is it just one of these things where Hey, in modern TV, sometimes we just say that a thing is a thing and we're not going to show you every little last bit. She's a commander because we say she's a commander and you can figure out why that is. Um, But I certainly would agree if we're all comparing, you know, pips, pip counts. um, She officially had a rank of captain in Section 31. That was my understanding. And now that is no longer the case. And I think, again, it's because writers say so, not because of uh, story as much as writers. Right. And I think, you know, if if she's captain and Saru a commander here, they're on equal footing. It's funny that she's not really appeared on the, the radar of who will be the next captain discussion. You know, Saru, who you look far enough into the trailers, is wearing the bars on his uniform. Um the Saru stuff about the knowledge of past events and impacting the present or the future. I get it, but that's always applied to the past. So now is this going to be a thing? I mean, is Burnham, she's wearing a Starfleet uniform. It's evident at the end of this episode, has she found Starfleet? And now does it become a thing like they can't tell this future Starfleet? I mean, when I say Starfleet, I mean more of them, not just, um, you know, the the Federation, uh, you know, uh, guy that she labeled as a as their comms chief. Now, uh, has she found a vessel? Is that what is lifting up Discovery and that they're going to have to be coy about 
the spore drive and the section 31 and the control operation, all that stuff that was stripped from the record, which made all the sense to cover up why Spock and Kirk never alert, alluded to Burnham. Although discovery is mentioned in the original series once. Yeah. But I think, I think in retrospect, we can look at the classic Trek. If we're going to be, uh, canon adherists, which, you know, again, at a certain point, it's that, was it a Roddenberry quote? Or I think it was a Leonard Nimoy quote where it's like, you know, canon is keeping track of things and, you know, uh, uh, jerks are the people who who live by it as though it's the gospel. I'm heavily paraphrasing, but uh, I think that in retrospect, we can assume that the reference of a discovery uh, in classic Trek is the, dis- the, the, the classic Trek era discovery A, uh, or, or similar, I'm not saying exact same number, and, and that it literally had an A after it, but they commissioned another ship, Discovery. Um, uh, of course, the real answer is they came up with a cool name back in 1967, and that was still a cool name, uh, you know, f- 45 years later when they started to put this show together. Um, if only as, we had named a uh, space shuttle that as well. That too, there you go. So, um as for this notion of, you know, what past tech shall not be shared uh, in order to not mess up the current timeline, I think, Pete, that is your canary in the coal mine in terms of, you know, does the show, does the show commit at some point this season, uh, perhaps even the end of the season, but does the show commit to um, doing what the big Star Treks do, doing what the best ones do? Uh, I'm talking about the you know Kirk era TV show movie combined, uh, the TNG era TNG movie uh, show and movies, you know, which is to retire out one ship, retire it in a blaze of glory, and get a brand new ship and all that you know all that brand new ship feeling to it. Um, it's weird that we have that reminder that you know there's things on this ship that are no no. Um, you know, again, if that keeps getting brought up and getting brought up. I would start to look for further evidence that it's going to have to be, you know, and, you know, set a course for her into the sun or something. Now, of course, we know a thousand years from now, the ship is still adrift, but we're going to hide it in the, you know, Dakadak Nebula where it'll never be seen again. Whatever it is, I think we might be headed in that direction towards, I would guess, towards the end of this season. But Pete, we want to thank all our listeners, none of whom need a courier like Zara to help support us on patreon.com slash fantastic geek. That means that we're all part of the USS fantastic geek crew without anybody putting the low setting phaser rifle to anybody's heads. Yeah. And the thing too, we want uh, our listeners to consider is what is the price you would put on our content uh, in terms of helping us out, contributing at patreon.com slash fantastic geek. That support always so appreciated. With that, Pete, let's go to Hailing Frequencies. Hailing Frequencies open, sir. Pete, we'll start with our Twitter poll. Uh, the four choices, 1.5 pips, icy feeling, got a little under 6%. Uh, okay, some people look for poll, Star Trek polls to downvote them, fine. Uh, two pips, Jeffrey's Tube, got a little bit less than 6%. Uh, three pips, Philica, Philippa High Kick. Got a little under 12%. And then four pips, Great Dilithium, got 76.5%. So some great numbers there. Uh, we heard first from JT Atkins. It's at JTA is me. 
Nothing like a little bit of the Old West, bad guys with spurs and all, a fun, suspenseful, almost self-contained episode with perfect sprinklings of larger arcs like Detmer, please be okay, great witty dialogue and engineering, hazmat gene, get back to your cleanup in aisle five. <laughs> uh, we also heard from uh, Far Beyond the Stars, that is uh, DS9FBTS on Twitter, loved it. The end scene is a masterclass in selling emotion through reaction. Uh, she may only be in the episode for 30 seconds, but Sonequa Martin-Green sets the tone perfectly. Mary Wiseman and Michelle Yeoh elevate it even further with their processing of Burnham being there alone for a year. Pete applause emoji. Uh, we also heard from Andre Yeager. That's at Dr. Polo 1983. Great episode. Love the Western saloon feel. Also, Giorgio is my favorite. Immediately, immediately diagnosed the situation and brought the pain. I definitely want her on my side. Uh, we heard from James. That's at Big Killin. A great episode that lived up to great expectations. They were able to showcase so many compelling characters in an episode that barely gave us any screen time with the show's lead. Disco's cast is the best in the universe and maybe sci-fi. Saru, Philippa are Trek tag team champs. Uh, even the previously on sequence was strangely engaging. Mm -hmm. uh, we heard from such a nasty woman. Pete, I'm not throwing aspersions. That's what them, they're calling themselves right. on Twitter. That's at uh, Talitha D-R-G-N-F-L-Y on Twitter. Uh, hope she's not turning all Arium on us. Speaking of Detmer, I think that's our deep hope as well. Uh, and recently, Pete, just in the last couple hours, we heard from J uh, JC the Mythic. That's at JC, hashtag Biden-Harris2020, comma, wear a mask. Uh, and JC says, I love space westerns. Pete, here, here's where, in this next part, here's where JC takes it up a notch. And it's like, yes, this is good discussion. Did they each get personal transporters? Or did they have two and one person went back and forth? Does it have a greater range than Discovery's transporter? So let me pause JC's questions there because there are a couple more. Pete, how many personal transporters? I think it's just the one. It seemed like Hopefully. one device. Certainly one was on screen. Maybe they did the huggy, you know, like you can hug while you transport and then you get your two for one. Um, JC also, also asks, when they left the miners the ship, doesn't it need command codes? How, uh, how do you start Zara's ship? That. What's that? There's story ways around that. Okay. And lastly, Pete, did they honor the dilithium trade? I guess we could assume off screen they did. Yeah. Um, and JC wraps up by saying, of course, none of that matters. What matters are themes. And I enjoy, well, let me pause, Pete. I appreciate that JC is putting into context these questions, not as nitpicky, but just digging into the world. So I would say these questions matter. I do agree with what JC is about to say in terms of there being larger issues, but let us, let us be consistent with personal transporter technology and command codes for ships. I'm okay with that. Uh, JC saying, of course, none of that matters. What matters are themes, and I enjoy the Federation proselytizing messages of character and hope. Contrasting values are important too, but too often our fiction spits in the face of people doing good in favor of rewarding antiheroes. Refreshing. With that, Pete, take us to Facebook where the dialogues are always constructive and helpful. Robert T. Frost writes into the Fantastic Geek Facebook page, Discovery... Season 3, episode 302. This was a fantastic second episode. 
Not as amazing as the season opener, but 301 set the bar extremely high and is quite a hard, quite the hard act to follow. With that said, Lieutenant Detmer has some awesome piloting skills that I think would have the admiration of Sulu. There were three relationships of note uh, to me in this episode. Saru v. Georgiou, Saru and Tilly, and Stamets and Reno. The tension and power between Saru and Giorgio was palpable, intense and delicious as it slowly builds towards an inevitable confrontation. The disrespectful and narcissistic response by Giorgio uh, will have to be dealt with by Saru very soon and definitively as her attitude is undercutting his authority and leadership with the crew. And speaking of leadership, I absolutely love the mentoring Saru gives Tilly several times throughout this episode. Uh, he recognizes her potential and works to strengthen that and her self-esteem, which seems to be in a fragile state after Giorgio stomps on it with Leland stain boots. <laughs> These exchanges tell me that Commander Saru should stay as captain of Discovery. I was less than impressed with the relationship building that the show put Stamets and Reno through. I love slash hate friend slash adversary, uh, a grudgingly mutual respectfulness a la Spock McCoy that for me fell flat. I may get there, but this feels forced, but give me more Reno one-liners, please. Lastly, is it me or does Mary Wiseman look bigger. Her face seems fuller, or was it just the costume? I know she got married in February 2019. Could she be pregnant? That's all for now, your friend Bob. Pete, on the topic of Giorgio, I think that uh, I think that Robert T. Frost there recognizes that she is ill-suited to take the big chair, ill-suited to be the, the the person in charge. She is disrespectful to those uh, who, who have put in the time. She is dismissive of uh, various races. I'm talking about the Kelpians, etc. Um, Pete, she is she is xenophobic. She is racist. Uh, she she has no respect for the traditions that have made Starfleet so great, uh, and therefore wholly unsuited for leadership there you go um the stuff about tilly i know there's been fan talk about the costuming yes she did get married could she have been with child when they filmed this i think we would have heard that she had a baby by now because there's been some length of time since this was filmed uh so i i, I just don't know Pete, though we have discussed the question, who shall be in charge? No question here as to the rank status of our beloved, the Admiral Fred from the Netherlands. Hello, Matt and Pete, and all listeners to Fantastic Geek. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek Discovery Season 3, Episode 2. As the first episode of this season, really very nice. And I also liked that there was, as in the first episode, no double storyline. So now we focus on the discovery. Cool visuals, very nice, this western setup. Cool fights, 
And I'm happy we find out that they really meet at the end of this episode, meaning Michael Burnham and the rest of the crew. I'm very curious if we get a lot of flashbacks from Burnham's life the last year. Of course, if you see the ready room with Bill Wheaton and you see a little bit of a scene of next week, we get a kind of summary what she did in one year. But I really wonder if this will be more extensively portrayed. Nice interaction between Georgiou and Saru. And if we listen to the ready room, that will continue throughout the season. Okay, that was all for now. I hope I can keep up with giving a little bit of feedback because there are many other shows I am going to watch and give feedback for as The Mandalorian is coming up and, for instance, His Dark Materials. So your Admiral Fred perhaps has to retire. And of course I have my regular podcast with Dave and Wayne and they are currently doing Stargate SG-1. A series i never seen before. Greets, all the best. Fred from the Netherlands. Pete, if Admiral Fred thinks he's retiring, it'll be in like a like an Admiral Kirk sort of sense. And uh, and 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 my point is, I can't imagine him retiring. Yeah. Uh-uh. Uh, he did point out no double storylines, kind of everything. I, I know we kind of had a splitting of things, but it was all Discovery crew, which I thought was a great observation. Yeah, and. I think the way they've chosen to do the unfolding of events early on in this season, okay, let's have Burnham arrive. We'll deal with the drama. We'll deal with the trauma there first alone. Okay. I think best not to tease out the, will they ever get back together? Particularly since they've shown us promotionally that they would, um, so to give us a, a Discovery-centric episode, to have her unexpectedly, I, I think we were all surprised that it was her at the end and that it wasn't, you know, the Federation, the bad guys. Like, she was the least uh, likely one to rescue them and, and flipped everything on its ear. Uh, the Admiral also wondering what will we get in terms of Burnham flashbacks? So Pete, how quickly do you think we will advance the year of 3188? That is the year that she arrived. And again, I'm presuming we're in 3189 just to make, (laughs) to make conversation easier. So I know that we've seen the high speed montage, you know, in some of the, the season three preview stuff. Do we get one minute? Do we get five? Do we get 10? What do you think? Is it an opening sequence? I mean, they've done this with Burnham in particular with Discovery. So this is not a new thing, you know, montage of her log and talking and events happening and the Klingon war now goes well, whereas it did not before or we are searching for the red angel and my brother Spock is missing. And how can I solve this mystery? So the show's always been most grounded in her as the main character, as the star, as part of the storytelling. And I could foresee, you know, a a 10 minute tease of, I was out with book. And then I went here and made this trade and got this stuff. And now my hair is, you know, over my ears. And then we did this. And then I have hair down to my shoulders. And, but wait, there was this. 
title sequence, come back. Oh, there's a distress signal. There's a ship trapped in parasitic ice. Oh, I recognize they have Delithium's uh, signature. Boom, let's go. Now I'm hugging Tilly. Good uh, prognostication for the future, Pete. In the more immediate future, in the Fantastic Geek future, in the next week, uh, we will be doing a review of the Borat sequel. We will be previewing Mandalorian Season 2. We will be, of course, next weekend talking Discovery Episode 303, uh, that on Saturday. And then we'll be talking Mandalorian Episode 201 on Sunday. So much fiction, both scientific <laughs> and ma just madcap uh, in, the, uh, in the near future. Yes, and uh, all of it, again, made possible by our patrons, patreon.com slash fantastic geek. Pete, for those checking out Borat, for those uh, wondering what's in store for Mandalorian in season two, how can people be in touch with you on Twitter? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 11,642 followers, can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast, comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek, all one word with the P and the H, like it today. Well, as mentioned, lots of stuff in our radar, on our radar. But uh, we'll see you again in the future for Star Trek next Saturday. With that, Pete, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. What you call pain, I call foreplay. <laughs>